January the 4th. I have to say, as I stood at the door today, I greeted very many people who were a little unsure of what to do. This was their first time at SACPA. So please make people at your tables welcome who have not been with us before. Tell them all about us and make sure they try to come back for another time. My name is Susan Gibbon and I will be moderating your session this afternoon. Today we have with us Adam no, I'm sorry, Adam. Alex. Do that every time. Alex Schattenberg. And Alex is going to be talking about the Supreme Court of Canada's mandated change to legislation regarding physician assisted death and what are our options. We all know that in February of 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that people with grievous and irremediable medical conditions have the right to ask the doctor for help to help them die. The court gave the federal government one year, and I believe that he tells me that day is tomorrow, to come up with guidelines. Now the Supreme Court has now given an additional four months for them to do that. The speaker will argue that the SCC decision will set a dangerous precedent and that Parliament must first use the notwithstanding clause to continue to equally protect every Canadian. Then Parliament and provincial governments must commit to improving access to end-of-life care, creating awareness to change social attitudes toward the lives of people with disabilities and the reality of elder abuse, and focusing on effective suicide prevention strategies to provide the care that Canadians require and deserve. Alex is the chair, the executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and chair of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition International. I would ask that you make sure you turn off your cell phones and please now welcome Alex to the podium. Well, I have a limited amount of time to handle such a large topic, uh, so I will go straight into it about the Supreme Court decision and issues around that. Now, things have changed. In fact, in this issue, things are changing every week. Things are changing as to what is going on politically with this question. Uh, nonetheless, I will do my best to give you some information. So in June of 2015, uh, during a press conference concerning um, a study that was published, concerning the first 100 requests for euthanasia for psychiatric reasons uh, by this uh, psychiatrist, Lee Thiembon. These were all requests made to her, and she works with the euthanasia clinic in Belgium. She introduced this person to us named Laura. Laura being a 24-year-old uh, woman who had lived her life with, for the last many years experiencing suicidal ideation, and she had been approved for euthanasia for psychiatric reasons. And I asked this question to us, could this be approved in Canada? And of course, we don't have legislation yet federally, so it's very hard to know what will be the end result. But we do know what the Supreme Court of Canada said, and the Supreme Court of Canada said that people who have a grievous and irremediable medical condition that's either physical or psychological, it could be a disability, etc. Um, and they did not define these terms. They allowed Parliament or others to define these terms could have either euthanasia or assisted suicide. And I'm going to go into a little bit quicker about what they actually did, the Supreme Court. 
What they actually did is they struck down Section 241B of the Criminal Code, which is the code that said you could not assist a suicide. So then when we look at that and say, does that mean they only legalize assisted suicide? Then what they did is they struck down Section 14, which in fact didn't really affect uh, the question of euthanasia per se. But in their decision, they used language throughout which said that euthanasia would also be acceptable. So you have a situation where they did not create uh, in their decision an exception to the criminal code to allow for euthanasia, euthanasia being a lethal injection, whereas assisted suicide being provision of a lethal prescription that someone would take themselves. They did not actually define that, but in their language they made it clear that could be acceptable. So you have a situation where parliament and, uh, and provinces, etc., will need to define the question. But under their decision, it could be possible, depending on the legislation, that this could also occur in Canada. So as I already said, euthanasia is different than assisted suicide. A lot of people get euthanasia confused because they think, oh, well that's about when people didn't ask for it. And in fact, the definition of euthanasia has nothing to do with the request. What it has to do with is the act. The act is when somebody is directly and intentionally causing that person's death based on reasons of mercy. And usually, of course, that would require a request. So when someone says, I'm talking about euthanasia, thinking I'm being extreme, they say, oh, this is all about voluntary, but the definition of euthanasia does not you know, include voluntary or involuntary. You can have a voluntary euthanasia or an involuntary euthanasia. Euthanasia is based on the act. Whereas assisted suicide, then, is a little different. So euthanasia has technically always been seen as a form of homicide, which means someone else is directly causing your death. So just for your information, how euthanasia was legalized in the Netherlands is they created an exception to the Homicide Act. So if you look at the Act, the Euthanasia Act in the Netherlands, you see what they've done is they've left the Homicide Act and then there's an exception to the Act for reasons of euthanasia. So clearly they define it still as euthanasia being a form of homicide. Euthanasia is not about withdrawing medical treatment, it's not about the use of uh, palliative sedation, and it's not about the proper use of uh, pain medication to relieve pain. So assisted suicide, I said, was a little bit different. That was section 241 of the Criminal Code, which technically still exists. Uh, Supreme Court provided four more months of that act to continue to exist. And that says you could not aid a better counsel someone to have suicide. And in fact, I always thought that was a great act because remember, suicide is not defined by whether or not one has a mental condition or not. Assisting a suicide, the concept is, is that when somebody is seeking assistance to a suicide, is it a good idea within the culture that someone actually assists that act? So that affects everyone. That would affect a teenager as well as someone who might be terminally ill or disabled. So let's go through some stories because the Supreme Court said physical or psychological suffering. So when you look at polling across Canada, you realize, yes, Canadians do, if you look at the polling, yes, they support the concept of assisted suicide for people with grievous medical conditions. And I understand that and I'm not hiding that. But when you look at the question of psychological suffering, are we ready for that kettle of fish, right? Is this, is this something we're interested in in Canada? Because the Supreme Court certainly opened that door. So Mark and Eddie Verbossum, these were twins who were born deaf in Belgium. And they died in, uh, in December of 2012 by euthanasia. They were in their mid-40s. They lived their whole life together. They, in fact, had a, had a business. Uh, they were, had a shoe repair business. That's what they did together. Um, and 
this is how they lived their whole life was together and now they were going blind so they were not blind yet the fact was that they were becoming blind and they decided that euthanasia was what they wanted because they decided that becoming blind would be too great a level of psychological suffering and they then went to the euthanasia clinic and the same psychiatrist that I told you about who dealt with the Laura case that was the case that was the uh, psychiatrist who also approved their deaths and they died by euthanasia a similar case happened in the Netherlands in October 2013 but it was once again a little different a Dutch woman who was uh, not otherwise sick she had no otherwise condition she was not in any way terminally ill she was not sick but she was also blind now she had become blind from a similar condition and uh, the fact was that she was not terminally ill she was not sick she was not deaf she had become blind and she asked for euthanasia based on psychological suffering because she had um, how would you say she had an obsession with cleanliness now this would seem to be an extreme case to many but the problem with the concept of psychological suffering, which is the same situation where the Supreme Court of Canada has not given us any definitions around that, is how do you define that concept of psychological suffering? And this is a great question that Canada is being faced with right now, because obviously if Parliament is going to approve euthanasia that would be also available for psychological suffering, then obviously speaking, how is that going to be defined? I asked you a further social question then. So my friend Amy Hasbrook. Amy was born legally blind. Amy's involved in our organization. Uh, she's a disability activist in Quebec. She runs a group called Toujours Vivant, Not Dead Yet. And uh, she's also a lawyer by training. And Amy, being born legally blind, I asked the question. Because remember, when they allow euthanasia for psychological suffering based on blindness, the reason for euthanasia then is actually blindness, right? Someone was saying it's too psychologically painful for me to be blind. Nonetheless, the reason is blindness. So I asked the social question, it's a very important question, if you're going to allow euthanasia under these circumstances, does that affect the attitude in the culture towards someone who's blind? I personally think it will, without a question. When these cases start coming up, it changes our perspective because now death becomes an option in that condition. The case of Tom Mortier is very important. He's a chemistry professor in, in Belgium. What's so important about this case is we know an awful lot about the death of his mother. His mother had been uh, uh, chronically depressed. She died by euthanasia based on, again, psychological suffering. Once again, she uh, was the same psychiatrist as the Belgian euthanasia clinic, at the Belgian euthanasia clinic. Now, what happened in her case is uh, Tom wants you to know exactly, because he's done a lot of investigation, he's got a case before the Human Rights Commission based on what happened to his mother. His mother had gone through uh, a long-term depression, that's true. Uh, his, uh, his father had died by suicide many years earlier, so there's significant pain in this family, there's no question about it. Um, but the fact is, is that she went to her psychiatrist seeking euthanasia, all that's true. But her psychiatrist was very clear that there was no grounds for euthanasia for Tom's mother. There were no grounds, he said. She went to another psychiatrist 
and she once again asked for euthanasia, and this psychiatrist also said there are no grounds for euthanasia, and then she ended up at the euthanasia clinic. Now, how it all happened is the, the, one, the doctor, Dr. William Disselmans, who was doing a talk similar to what I'm doing right now, uh, he was in their community giving a presentation. She attended that presentation and became then connected to that euthanasia clinic, and they approved her death. Now, what's important here is Tom wants you also to know that she had gone through a period of time of great happiness just recently before this time she went into deep depression. So as much as we might think about relationships with 16-year-olds and the ridiculous situations that occurred, but in his case for his mother, his mother had been in a long-term relationship with a man, and she had been doing a lot of traveling. She was very happy. He explains very clearly about the story. He says, well, you know, my mother uh, was a retired teacher. She had some wherewithal. She was enjoying her traveling. She was happy, and then the relationship broke up, and she went into a deep depression. Where his concern also comes from the fact that he did not know she was going to die by euthanasia. He was never given the opportunity to say to his mother, you know, you're important to me. Please don't do this. You're important in my life. Never was given that opportunity. And his children, his three children, they were never given the opportunity also to have that opportunity to convince her otherwise. So you have a tragic situation of a family feeling intense pain based on a decision related to psychological suffering for euthanasia. Remember, you can't bring someone back from euthanasia. You can't, they just, they have died. Here's another case, you can look it up in the media. Uh, actually, I can send you, if you, if you don't believe me, you can, e you can email me, I'll send you the story. It's a bit of a ridiculous case, but it's absolutely true. Anne was a 44-year-old woman who died by euthanasia in Belgium based on psychological suffering. She had this psychiatrist, Dr. Van der Eiken, and she had gone through many years of her suffering with anorexia. And Dr. Van der Eiken was an expert in anorexia, supposedly. Anyway, Dr. Van der Eiken had convinced Anne to have a sexual relationship with him, which was a great, as you know, a, that's a great problem when you have a patient-physician relationship like that. Anne then, after a short period of time, submitted a complaint based on this sexual relationship to the medical board, and it was being investigated, and then Anne decided she wanted to euthanasia. And she made it quite clear, you see, you read the article, she made it quite clear, the pain that she had experienced based on what she defined as sexually being exploited, and the pain related also to the procedure of complaining about this to the medical board was too great for her to continue living. Now here's the reality. I don't think anybody would question the pain that Anne was experiencing. The question is, what is the cultural reaction to this intense pain? And if you allow euthanasia for psychological suffering, these are the cases that you're not going to be thinking about when you're approving that legislation. So let's go a little bit to Oregon. In the state of Oregon, they have assisted suicide. So I've already made it very clear, euthanasia and assisted suicide have differences. Uh, the Supreme Court decision would allow them both. In Oregon, they do not allow euthanasia, they do allow assisted suicide. Barbara Wagner lived in Oregon and she had recurrent lung cancer. And so what happened is, is in 2007, she was prescribed an aggressive form of medical treatment based on the fact that her prognosis was not very good. She was dependent on the state health plan. She was turned down for medical treatment. 
And in the letter turning her down for medical treatment, she was offered assisted suicide. Now what's important about this is we have to understand about this concept of freedom of choice. Is this not a form of coercion? I'm not questioning, and I would not question, the right of the state to say we do not offer certain types of medical treatment in certain circumstances. Obviously, there's a reality to the limited resources. The question is, is what is the state doing getting involved with offering assisted suicide in these circumstances? I would also say further to that, is this a possibility? Now, I live in Ontario. You should feel sorry for me. <laughs> we have massive, de massive deficits right now. And there's been significant healthcare cutbacks. Could this be a reality in Ontario? I don't know. But what I do know is there's a reality that assisted suicide and euthanasia are cheap responses, whereas medical treatment would be very expensive. That's a reality. So then the question of depression comes up. It's a very important question because in Oregon they actually have a situation. See, in Oregon they don't allow assisted suicide for psychiatric conditions or for depression. If you read the law, they, the one section of the law says that if the doctor uh, believes that you're experiencing depression or mental illness or whatever, you're supposed to be sent for a psychiatric or a psychological assessment. So in Oregon they will tell you, we do not do assisted suicide on depressed people. And, and if you look at the uh, polling in Canada, Canadians would actually support that sort of position. Nonetheless, Dr. Benz is a physician in an organ, and he tells the story of his long-term patient who he had diagnosed with cancer. His patient was 76 years old. He, is, he then referred his patient to the oncologist, the cancer specialist, and the oncologist called him up asking him to be the second doctor to sign on to the suicide form. So I'm going to stop one second and explain to you how these laws work, because I think you know the devil's sort of in the details. So how these laws work in every single jurisdiction is that, yes, there must be a request. That's true. And they call it an explicit request in the Netherlands and Belgium. In Oregon and in Washington State, they, they have a specific design of how the request must be made. Two doctors then must agree to that request. So you have a primary physician. In this case, it would have been the oncologist. And you have a second physician. And once you have two doctors agreeing, you must go, they can go ahead with the assisted suicide. And then after the person has died, they send in a report to the government agency. Every jurisdiction is the same. So after Alex is dead, the doctor who's directly involved in the act must send in a report. So this is an important information because that's the same thing Quebec has, has approved. So the concept of oversight becomes very difficult when you have a law that's designed to be A, policed by the doctors, and B, the reporting procedures done by the doctor who did the act, so you don't have a third party involvement. When you're looking at these some abuses of law, you'll see that it's coming from those areas specifically, the design of the law, but they're all the same. In this case, his patient died by assisted suicide. So what happened? Well, obviously what happened is the oncologist simply called another doctor. The patient certainly was terminally ill, but Dr. Benz said, well, my patient is depressed. Dr. Benz, in fact, when he tells the story, he explains, well, you know, I just recently seen my patient. My patient needed treatment for the deep depression. Now, the response to this should be quite clear. Is it uncommon for someone who has cancer to become depressed? 
is it possible that maybe treatment for depression should always be an option before they decide to end your life? In his case, he made it very clear. The funny thing is, the story goes further because Dr. Benson published this a couple of years ago. The doctor who was the second doctor who finally who had agreed, who was signed on onto the to the situation, then wrote a letter saying, "Well, if I had known that the primary physician, being Dr. Benz, had recognized that this patient was depressed, I would not have agreed." But of course, the other doctor, the oncologist, certainly knew that Dr. Benz had made it very clear his patient was depressed. So the point of it is, is how is the law going to be operated in order to effectively have oversight? Right? If you're going to cause death, if you're going to be able to do that, then the bloody well better be oversight in order to protect people. Wonderful watch here. Jeanette Hall. Well, this is an interesting story, and it brings up two points, or three points probably. Jen Hall lives in Oregon. And in 2000, she was diagnosed with cancer and given six months to a year to live. And Jeanette Hall had voted in favor of assisted suicide. So how it was legalized in an Oregon assisted suicide was through a voter initiative. It was a plebiscite, right? And this is from a letter she wrote. She's still alive today. So she went to her physician, and she wanted assisted suicide. She did not want medical treatment. She was very clear. She didn't want radiation. She didn't want to suffer. She wanted assisted suicide. And within a few months, she would have definitely qualified if she had not had received any treatment. Her physician was not a supporter of assisted suicide. So the story is quite clear about what happened. Both of them have told the story in many ways. There's a video now you can watch of their story. And, and, and how it works is Jeanette wanted assisted suicide. Her physician didn't believe in assisted suicide. So what he did is he talked to her. He wanted to know what was important to Jeanette Hall. He wanted to know, you know what made her tick. And what he found out was that she had a son, and her son was very important in her life. Very, very important in her life. So, and she, he found out that her son was in, in a police college. So pretty soon he was going to be a police officer. So he said to Jeanette, well, mm -hmm. if we try some mild forms of medical treatment for your condition, you're, you're going to live long enough for sure to see your son graduate from police college and become a police officer. Would you like that? So she agreed. She agreed. She accepted treatment. She reacted well to the treatment. And then over several months, he was discussing these, this whole situation. And he made it very clear, well, wouldn't you like to see your son actually get married someday? And of course, she said, of course. I'd love to see my son get married someday. I'd love to see my, I'd love to see grandchildren. She was very interested in that idea. And he said, well, you're doing very well with treatment. If you try a more aggressive form of treatment, you might go into remission. Now, she did go into remission. Now, the story is not that everyone goes into remission. The point was, this was a physician who wanted to know what was important to Jeanette Hall, who wanted assisted suicide. By finding out what was important to Jeanette Hall, Jeanette Hall changed her mind. She accepted treatment. She's alive today. And her point is, I'm happy to be alive. I'm very happy to be alive. I'm happy that this did not happen to me. And what about wrong diagnosis? I'm sure there's many of these cases, but this is one that showed up in the Italian newspapers. So this uh, Pietro D'Amico, in April 2013, died by assisted suicide in Switzerland at the assisted suicide clinic. And he was told he had a terminal condition. So he went to the Swiss, Swiss assisted suicide clinic. He died by assisted suicide. And in his autopsy, it showed he was not terminal at all. He had a wrong diagnosis. Now, will this happen in Canada? 
Well, knowing the fact that physicians are not perfect, the medical system is not perfect, I'm assuming that this would happen regularly, and I'm assuming it's happening regularly already in places where it's legal. Because once you have a diagnosis that makes you qualified, then of course it's possible. So let's look at some quick some data from Belgium, and I think that by then the 30 minutes will be up, and we'll be all good to go. So there's a Belgium study that was published in March 19, 2015. Now this is very important. Why am I talking about this data? Well, all the data we have about euthanasia comes from the official reports. And the official reports are garnered from the information that is submitted by the doctors after their patient died. So therefore, the other side is always arguing, well, that data shows us that there's very little abuse of the law. In Belgium, they did in 2013 what you call a death study. They looked at, um, they actually sent out questionnaires dealing with about 7,000 deaths, and they got 3,751 responses. So the point is, they looked at all deaths. If you died in a car crash, if you died of a heart attack, or if you died by euthanasia, your data would show up in this study. Okay? And the study found that 4.6% of all the deaths were euthanasia. Okay? The study also found that 1.7% of all the deaths were then intentionally hastened without request. Now this is significant. In a small country like Belgium, it would add up, actually this is only in the Flanders region of Belgium. In the Flanders region of Belgium, if the data actually goes across, it would show that there was a little over a thousand deaths in the year 2013 that were intentionally hastened without request. And if you look at that data, it's actually even more concerning. It tended to be done to people who were in coma or had dementia. Okay? Tend to be those, not always, but almost always those cases, they tended to be older people who were in a hospital who had coma or dementia. They were incompetent, right? And according to the study there, for the 4.6%, okay. Well, if you do the math, now obviously this study dealt with 3,751 deaths, and there were 61,000 deaths in the year, so you're talking about only 6%. But if you're to do the math, that would be about 2,800 euthanasia deaths. But the official reports show 1,454. So that confirms what we already knew, that there's significant underreporting in Belgium. Now, why am I saying we already knew it? Well, we already had stories from people like Dr. Mark Cousins, who had reported, in a, had been interviewed in a newspaper in, uh, in Belgium, and saying, I do euthanasia, but I never report my euthanasia. So you have these stories, so you just don't know how many there are. According to the data, it's significant. Significant. Now, why is that happening? It's because the system is not designed to provide effective oversight. The system is designed that the doctor will approve, the doctor will do the death, and after you die, they will send in a report, and the data shows that often reports are never sent in. In fact, if you look at the Netherlands data, it shows about 20% of the time the reports are never sent in. That tells you about the vulnerable group. Okay, they did a similar study a few years ago in, in uh, Belgium, and they're asking nurses. And this is sort of important because it shows you uh, uh, the, the data it was similar. They asked 1,678 nurses, um, and they got 1,265 responses about their experience with euthanasia. And in that data, it showed that 45% of those nurses said that their experience with euthanasia was that the last person to die of euthanasia was done without request. That's significant data. Very significant. And I'm going to jump past that. So latest data shows in 2015 there was 2,021 reported euthanasia deaths. 
What was very interesting about the data it just came out, just like it's just like a, a little over a week old. They asked this Dr. Wim Disselman, who's the head of the uh, Euthanasia Control and Evaluation Commission, what he thought of that, and he says, well, we don't actually know how many euthanasia deaths there are. He says, we know that there's some unreported deaths. We just don't know how many. So he's, for the first time, actually coming out and admitting, oh, well, we have euthanasia deaths. They're just never, that are never reported, and we can't tell you how many there are. And we don't know anything about them. But the other thing about the data is you show this massive increase and the approval for child euthanasia, etc. So as I'm winding this up, in 2013 in November, I actually was in Belgium, and I had a debate with this, this uh, Dr. Jan Bernheim. Now, it doesn't matter. You can Google him. You'll see that he was one of the key promoters of euthanasia at the time when euthanasia became legal in Belgium. And so what happened is we had this debate. And in the debate, I went through the data at the time out of Belgium, and I showed very clearly that there's abuse of the law going on. His response to that, because you know how that debate go, the responses and everything, he said, well, there are problems with the Belgian euthanasia law. And I responded by saying, well, that's cold comfort for the dead. I'm hoping that five years from now, I'm not here talking to you saying, you know, look what's going on in Canada, and it's really cold comfort for the dead. Thank you.